In 1862, General Ulysses S. Grant issued General Orders No. 11, banishing Jews from large parts of Tennessee, Kentucky, and Mississippi, likely the most anti-Semitic official decree in the history of the United States government. How could this have happened? Was Grant an anti-Semite? Can something like this happen again? In this episode, we look to answer some of these questions and offer historical background as well as some lessons learned from Grant's infamous decree. As always, please feel free to reach out if you have any questions, and do us a favor by liking and sharing this podcast, or even better, leave us a comment. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Math. Headquarters, 13th Army Corps, Department of the Tennessee, Oxford, Mississippi, December 17th, 1862. Item number one, the Jews as a class violating every regulation of trade established by the Treasury Department and also Department Orders are hereby expelled from the Department. Item number two, within 24 hours from the receipt of this order by post commanders, they will see that all of this class of people be furnished passes and required to leave. And anyone, anyone returning after such notification will be arrested and held in confinement until an opportunity occurs of sending them out as prisoners, unless furnished with permit from headquarters. Item number three. No permits shall be, given, shall be given these people to visit headquarters for the purpose of making personal application for trade permits. By order of Major General U.S. Grant, Junior Officer, I think his name it just says A, I think it was Alex Rawlins, I forgot his first name, Rawlins, that was Grant's sidekick, Assistant, I'm assuming that stands for Adjutant General. It's hard to imagine, and it's a remarkable thing, the notorious, the infamous General Order Number 11, issued by Ulysses S. Grant, the end of December of 1862, kicking the Jews, expelling the Jews out of the Department of the Tennessee, which was the area of, at this point, Major General Grant's supervision. That basically was all of Western Tennessee, basically from the essentially from the Mississippi to the Tennessee River, um, parts of Kentucky, parts of Ohio, essentially, in theory, all of Mississippi, um, but parts that were under Union control. It sounds like something that would happen in Tsarist Russia, not the United States of America, land of the free, home of the brave. How in the world did this happen? What's the context? What's the story? What are the lessons? It's remarkably not talked about, not as well known in the United States history, the banishment of the Jews from Tennessee. But it's a real story. This is not make-believe. This really actually happened. What's the story? What are some of the lessons? And in the next couple minutes, we're going to try to go through the background, what happened, why did it happen, and I'd like to, as we, whenever we talk, have, we have history discussions in, in, uh, in any of our groups, try to make it germane. What are some lessons that we can learn and gain from that are applicable to our lives today? Good? Ready to roll? Buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. Ulysses Hiram Grant was born in the early 1600s. He gets the name U.S. Grant by a clerical error. He was born in Ohio. His parents were not particularly wealthy people. By a fortune of really good luck, his father happened to be able, when he was about 17 or 18 when he came of age, 
He was able to get him into West Point. It was really totally a fluke, um, the way it works, and it worked back then, and still to some degree works, works now as well. You need to get a congressional recommendation. And the fellow who had gotten the congressional recommendation had gotten into trouble, and Ulysses' father, Jesse, who's going to be an important figure in our story, was able to get him somehow a recommendation into West Point. Grant initially did not want to go. He had no vision of being a soldier, but he didn't really have any other options. He was a, from a poor family in, in a, you know, random parts of Ohio. He ends up going to West Point. He's pretty middle of the pack in West Point. After West Point, he graduates, becomes an officer, uh, bounces around from not such exciting posts uh, around the country, different forts. Mexican-American War, he serves nobly for his country. Nothing too spectacular, although he becomes quartermaster general, which means he was in charge of arranging supplies for the army. That would be a skill, that would be the defining skill of Grant's career. After the Mexican-American War, he gets posted in some random places, and eventually, in the, around the year 1850, a little bit after 1850, he leaves the army because he's really unsatisfied with the military life. He had just gotten married to his wife, Julia Dent, had a couple of kids, and he was pretty miserable. He leaves, moves to St. Louis, where, where his wife is from, and is completely broke. We've talked about some of the stories of Grant, his poverty, and his remarkable life story. It's uh, some really remarkable lessons. The outbreak of the Civil War really saved Grant's life because he was slipping into alcoholism. He was not able to hold down a job. And at this point, he was leaving, living in a small town in Galena, Illinois. Now, that's not, that's also, he's a fortuitous man because Illinois also happens to be an important state because there's another important person figuring prominently during this time, also from Illinois, Lincoln. And that's going to be important because Grant and Lincoln are going to develop quite a bond and most historians think that Lincoln had a little bit of Illinois pride because Grant, when he signs up for the Civil War, declares he's from Illinois, which he was. He's from Galena, Illinois. He slowly becomes a colonel and moves his way up the army in the beginning of the, of the Civil War. He's a pretty low ranking, and when he first joins the, uh, the, the when he re-enlists in the outbreak of the Civil War, um, takes him a while, he f ends up getting promoted to brigadier general, one-star general. Um, which is, you know, that's pretty significant, but there are a million and one one-star generals, you know, brigadier generals. He rises to national fame, if you recall your brief Civil War history, the, the Civil War started very, very slow for the North. Lincoln couldn't get anyone to fight. If you recall your AP American history from the 10th grade, you'll recall the Civil War starts really poorly for the North. He can't get, he has a bunch of clowns, none of his generals are interested in fighting. There's this one general out west who has a passion for fighting, who realizes he, they need a fight. It's not, you can't just build armies and, and hope the south will go away. He realized they, they needed some muscle. And that was Brigadier General Grant. And he goes ahead and he at one point early on in the war, he goes on a bold, uh, a, a bold campaign. He defeats the Confederacy at Fort Henry and then subsequently Fort Donelson. And that was really, Fort Donelson was essentially the first victory for the Union. They hadn't had a single battle victory. Grant was really the first, if you think about it, he was the first general to actually win a battle. And that really rose into prominence, and it caught Lincoln's attention, because finally, 
They, had, they, they lost every single battle, essentially, until Grant was successful at, at Fort Henry and Donaldson. He gets promoted, and then he leads his, small, his, his division. Um, they end up meeting the Confederates at a small church called Shiloh, where the Civil War really sees its first horrific battle. That was the first absolutely horrific battle. It's Shiloh. More soldiers died in Shiloh than every, every battle the United States Army had fought up until that, that point, beginning with the, the, the American Revolution. Up to that point, it was a disastrous war. But Grant kind of wins. It, it, took the, the kind, it was a little divided because the, the Union lost so many soldiers. But Grant wins. And at that point, Lincoln finally has a general that he can, he can trust and be proud of. Manassas Bull Run. This, Bull Run's the first battle of the war, so this is significant. Shot after Shot. After. What? Manassas? Manassas. First Bull Run is first, much earlier, a year earlier. Great. So Grant wins. He now is, is popular. The country knows who's the, who this guy is. And after Shiloh, Grant is giving control, he's turned into the field general in charge of what was called the Department of the Tennessee, which as we discussed was a very large part of land, a very significant part of the country, uh, deep in the Confederate South. And it's as major general after the Battle of Shiloh, before a major campaign, the next major would be the most significant, camp one of the most significant campaigns of the war would be the attack on Vicksburg. So it's in between the campaigns of Shiloh and Vicksburg is when our story takes place. December of 1862. So what happened? What happened? What's the story? After Grant was successful at these previous battles, Donaldson, Henry, Shiloh, so he's now in charge of a great swath of land that used to be Confederate territory. What did the Confederate, what is the South economically based on, we all learned, cotton, right? Cotton. Now, the economics of the Civil War were such that the North placed an embargo around the South. They wanted to stifle the South from being able to sell their cotton, to raise capital, to, buy, to get gold, so they could buy army, munition, supplies, to fund their war. So the, the North wanted to shut down the South economically. The question was, is as the North went ahead and was victorious and conquered land of the old South, of the Confederacy, what were they to do with all that cotton? Because after all, the North desperately needed that cotton. Does everyone remember they needed that cotton for their uniforms and to you know, run all the things that they needed to do in the North? So it's a little bit of a, of a funny situation. The North needs the South's cotton. The South needs the North's money. Okay? Everyone with me so far? Does that make sense? It's an easy one. What? It's an easy one. Well, it's, it's, it's a problem. How, what are you going to do? So, Grant was strongly of the opinion, strongly of the opinion that the Union, the Army, should confiscate all of the cotton. It's a, you know, this is needed for the war effort, even though it's indirect, but we need the cotton. We can't let the South get the cotton and sell the cotton and be able to fuel themselves economically. So Grant, it, you know, petitions Washington, the United States government should basically take charge of all the cotton, and we should set the price 
Anyone up north who wants to buy cotton, great, you have to go buy, go buy it from Uncle Sam. That was Grant's feelings. Lincoln felt different. Lincoln really wanted to get the South, after they were defeated, back into the Union. Lincoln was not interested in punishing the South. He wanted things to get returned to normal as soon as possible. So Lincoln decided, instead of the North confiscating the, the cotton, rather it should be sold by private individuals of the South, maybe take a loyalty, after taking a loyalty oath or something like that, but it should remain in private hands. Does that make sense? That was a, that was a major point of disagreement between, between Washington and Grant. Grant hated this. Why? Because invariably, right, I'm no ec economist, but when there's a massive demand up north for, comp, for cotton and they had a very limited supply, what happens? Prices skyrocket. And there was opportunities, and because it wasn't, you know, the, the union, the, the government wasn't setting the price, it was going to be open to the markets, you're incentivizing, you know, people to really get in on the cotton business. Now, Washington required if you were going to sell cotton, you needed to get a permit from the Department of the Treasury. And you also needed to get a permit from the gut, from the army. If you think about it, who's going to regulate and make sure that the cotton is being sold appropriately and isn't being sold to, to fund the South and the army? So you needed a special permit, meaning Grant's army had to police to make sure that the cotton was being sold appropriately. Grant hates this situation. Why? A number of reasons. The, to try to police you know, this area of land is a major distraction. He's trying to fight a war to win for the North. Now all of a sudden he's got to regulate cotton. It's just, it's, it's a hassle. He doesn't want to have to deal with that. Number two, he felt that the money was getting into the South's hands. It was helping the Southern cause and helping them to, to wage war. Number three, he felt it was an opportunity for spies, for people to say, oh, I'm kosher, I'm, I'm a legitimate salesman, but really what you're doing is, is you're, you're a spy for the South. And it really opened the door for smugglers. It really opened the door for the black market. Because it wasn't heavily controlled and regulated, you know, by the North, and it was, you had this privatization, there was an incredibly large black market that was opened up. And you had smugglers, people who wanted a profit from this cotton. Who were those smugglers? Were they Jewish? Yeah. Yes. So, not all smugglers were Jewish, and not all Jews were smugglers. Okay? Were some of the smugglers Jewish? Yes. Yes. An absolute yes. You combine that with you know, certain generalizations, you know, Shylock Jew, you know, the Jews being the, the money lenders and the people who are trying to rip everyone off, and Grant issues, and it's in that context, that's when Grant issues order number 11. He's frustrated, it really boils down to his frustration with people smuggling out cotton to fund the South and all these other concerns that he has, and the, the difficulty policing it, and that's why he issues Grant, Grant's notorious order number 11. That's the proximate cause, and that's the context. Does that make sense so far? Thoughts, questions? Do you think he was just a semi? Okay, so we're going to get to that. I'll offer my opinions in a, in a moment. I want to, we're going to try. So that's the basic story. We're going to, in a moment, we're talking about what happened. 
I'm going to offer a couple of questions. How could this have happened? What are some of the lessons? And I want to deal with that question. Was Grant an anti-Semite? Beg your pardon? Jews are entrepreneurs. They saw a way to make money. As are Gentiles. Right? You know? So let's call them entrepreneurs rather than smugglers. Beg your pardon? <coughs> call them entrepreneurs rather than smugglers. And entrepreneurs, whatever. Whatever oh, everyone's talking about. Well, it was, it was smuggler because it was illegal. It's a black market. So that's why I would, you know, I think the word smuggler is, in this sense, is, is appropriate because it was, it was all done illegally. So what happens? Grant issues order number 11. Did the Jews get kicked out? Now, you have to understand, as we mentioned, it's a huge, very large area. So for Grant to get that issue out to everywhere in Tennessee, Kentucky, Mississippi, Ohio, he's going to have to get the word out, keeping in mind you're in rebel territory. If you study, if you recall your Civil War history, you may recall the evil, horrible, you know, the terrible, you know, Nathan Bedford Forrest, I don't know if everyone recall, Nathan Bedford Forrest would end up becoming the first, you know, leader of the Ku Klux Klan after the war, the war. but remember that, right? They just took his statue down. As they should. He was a bad, I mean, okay, we're going to get the statue, take the statues down. Now. I can't imagine that there's really, there's been, he was a bad dude. This was the last It's shocking that there's even a statue. He was, he was a bad dude, even before the Ku Klux Klan. He was like one of the most hated people in the North. Who was Nathan Bedford Forrest? Nathan Bedford Forrest ran a cavalry detachment and would basically go marauding, you know, and just, you know, Grant, he's got his little army or a big army, but smack in the middle of Confederate in the middle of the enemy territory. So you have these big standing armies that he's going to be fighting against. But you have Bedford, Nathan Bedford Forrest is, has this little small detachment of 1,000, 2,000, I think, cavalry, horse riders. And they would go around just destroying all the supply lines, the telegraph wires, the railroads. It made it, su he was super, super annoying. And he was a vicious killer. So you had Nathan Bedford Forrest as well, similar, not quite as famous, Earl Van Dorn, who would go around just making it very difficult for the Union Army, which is deep in the South, to get resupplied from their, store from their storage lines. And communication was difficult, because they'd be constantly cutting uh, telegraph lines. So that actually helped the Jews in this case, because since communication was very slow because of these marauders, it took a little bit of time for Grant's orders to really get disseminated, to make it, to the, to make it out there. Many of the people under Grant, you know, generals who got General Order Number 11, were, as you can imagine, shocked and like were waiting for clarity. So many generals, I think the sense that I have from, from studying, most generals kind of didn't act on it immediately. They were waiting for clarity. It was such a, a shockingly uh, unconstitutional proclamation. They, many, many, many higher ups wanted to wait for clarity. That said, were there Jews who were actually expelled? And the answer is yes. There were Jews, now keep in mind, there aren't many massive Jewish communities at this time. In the whole United States, including the Confederacy, there may be, at the time of the Civil War, 150,000 Jews living in the United States. So we're not talking about, to begin with, Jews in the United States were a small, percent, a small number. And particularly in this area, this isn't, this isn't Flatbush, it ain't Brooklyn, it's in Chicago. This is, you know, Tennessee, Kentucky. These were smaller Jewish communities, but there were Jews there. Not this. Well, 
In the 1860s? In the 1860s. After the war. After the war. In? The, the common in Jews were so wealthy, they were the wealthy. That's why Africans may be anti-Semitic, because the really wealthy were the Jews okay. who traded. So his great-grandfather was brought in to be a Hebrew teacher. Really? For those? For their kids. So I want to circle back to that, what my theory on Grant. Okay. It was, he, was it because of the wealth? I'm going to, hopefully we'll get to that in a second. The Jewish community of Paducah, Kentucky, Kentucky, I I'm going to be looking at you for all my geography, because I we are, are, you know, Midwestern. Paducah, it's, it's up, up top, right on the border, it's on the river, right? Right. On the Ohio River. I think it's on the confluence to the Mississippi. Yeah, I think it's on the confluence, I think, of like the Tennessee and the Ohio or something. The Jews of Paducah were kicked out. There's about 30 families were expelled. They were given 24 hours notice. Men, women, and children were kicked out. There is, if anyone wants to do for, for further reading, this is definitely probably the best book by Jonathan Sarno, one of the best Jewish historian, American historians, uh, when General Grant expelled the Jews. So it's directly on the topic. This is probably your most direct book on this, on this topic. What is it called? When General Grant expelled the Jews by Sarna. If you want for further reading, just to interrupt, this is my second favorite book on Grant, Gene Edward Smith, a great historian. Um, so he's got some good stuff here we'll quote in a second. My favorite book on Grant is Ron Chernow's Grant. My third favorite book is by H.W. Brands, has a good biography on Grant. And they all have a lot of treatment on General Order 11. Just so we understand, it, it would be clear this was the low point, as Chernow points, you know, writes eloquently, this is the low point of Grant's entire career, both as a general and as a president. This is by far historically throughout, and he would tell you this was the low point of his career. Couple, so a couple, about 30 families are expelled from Paducah. He, in, um, Sarna writes a harrowing story of uh, a, young, a young couple, uh, a fellow and his fiance, who were actually from the north, who were in Paducah, who were basically beaten up, had all their property taken, um, their, their luggage was burned, and they had to, like, they were in prison and had to run for their lives. So there were some horrible stories. Um, it should be noted, as I mentioned, that the, the, the proclamation was issued by General, by, by Rawlins, who was, who was Grant's kind of right-hand man. Rawlins protested loudly that this was a bad idea, but Grant didn't care. There's a story, um, there were a lot of questions immediately. Let's say you were a soldier in the North, and you were Jewish. Were you expelled? That's a real, you know, the, 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 the order was, it made no provisions, it doesn't say any exceptions. So indeed, one Captain Philip Trunstein of the 5th Ohio Cavalry resigned, he wrote, I can no longer bear the taunts and malice of those who my religious opinions are known, brought on by the fact that that order has instilled in their minds. So. I think you know we have one act, you know soldier, a captain, who resigned in, from the army. There was one Jew in the Paducah congregation. His name was Caesar Caskell. When he heard about the, the order and that it was enforced, he immediately petitioned Lincoln. And he sent the telegraph to Lincoln that you know how could this be? Probably Lincoln didn't get the telegraph. And here is a real good question for you history buffs. Why would Lincoln, not, I mean, Lincoln may have 
Washington may have received it, but Lincoln probably never read it because Lincoln was very busy. What's Lincoln busy with in the end of December 1862? Well, the Civil War. But what's going to happen on January 1st, 1863, just a few days away? The Emancipation Proclamation. So he's got his hands quite full with a big deal. So he probably never got the telegram. However, the story goes that Castle wrote up some kind of, or he forwards this telegram to the you know, Jewish papers. The AP picks up the story, and using, I guess, modern terms, it went viral. All the major, right, all the major news outlets picked it up. And Grant was slammed. Absolutely. Here's the good, good part of the story. He was slammed. The overwhelming response from the press, from politicians, from everyone, was that this was outrageous. The story goes, it's an apocryphal story, that eventually this fellow Caskell makes, it way, makes his way um, down to, let's see if I can find it, makes his way to Lincoln. I don't think this, most scholars don't think this story is true. But eventually, he, he finds his way in, into Washington, and he has a meeting with Lincoln. And Caskell reports the following story. No one thinks it's true. Lincoln says, and so the children of Israel were driven from the happy land of Canaan? Listen to all the biblical language. Caskell, yes, and that is why we have come to Father Abraham's bosom, asking protection. Lincoln, and this protection they shall have at once. And they all lived happily ever after. Lincoln immediately, when he finds out about the order, when he gets it on January 2nd, he immediately rescinds the order. And that's why the end of the story is not many Jews were actually affected by, by the expulsion. If you consider the lack of communication because of Native Bedford Forest, the fact that many of the generals were a little hesitant to actually execute the order, and the fact that it's rescinded two weeks later, you know, that's how fast you know, things travel, not much damage was actually done. This is one of these situations, however, that the bark was a lot more painful than the bite. Not, although, there were, again, there were, Sarna suggests, we'll never know exactly how many Jews were actually expelled. Most Jews in the bigger cities, I don't think Memphis was enforced. That's the sense that I got from reading. I, I, I don't think Memphis, Louisville, Knoxville, although I don't know if those places are in, but, but like, there was all these like small towns, like Paducah was the biggest town that was affected. Um, Lincoln goes ahead and he reverses the, the, the order. Congress immediately picks up, even after the order goes away, all the Jews are returned, everyone lives happily, happily ever after, Congress introduces a motion to set, publicly censure Grant for, you know, for this horrific you know, proclamation. It was voted down in both the House and in the Senate. And interesting, the language that Lincoln writes back, he doesn't even write to Grant. He actually writes to Grant's superior, uh, General Halleck, who, and Lincoln's language is very, very, very soft and gentle. He says, I heard that such an order was issued. If it's true, I'm hereby rescinding it. He doesn't scold Grant, he doesn't reprimand it, and it kind of just goes away. Congress, you know, although there were many who voted to, to, to censure him, uh, you know, does not. Why do you think that is? I'll tell you. Because Lincoln needed Grant, and the country needed Grant. He was the first soldier that was willing to fight, 
and smearing him now and bursting his confidence was something that Lincoln, I think Lincoln abhorred the, the order, but he wasn't willing to, to, to burst Grant's bubble. So he kind of wanted to let, let this go gently, and that was kind of how Lincoln treated it. That's the end of the story, essentially, for now. This happens in the, in the end of 1862. He becomes president in 1868. And as we're going to see, General Orders Number 11 in, during Grant's presidency is going to be a very, very big deal. Not a small deal. So I, I kind of want to reiterate one of the lessons to be learned, which is a good lesson, or two lessons. Number one, you should, it, it, it's, it's interesting. The Jews as a community, the Jewish community, did really rally together to petition Washington. They organized. And they were quite vocal, you know, protesting what happened. So the Jewish community did come together. You know, everyone was kind of, it was, it was one of these interesting things where, you know, every hot shot in the Jewish community, they want to be the one to take the credit for sending the order. So it was almost like everyone was like fighting to be the one to be, you know, I was the one who spoke to Lincoln to get the thing, you know. So there was a lot of that, which I guess is a good thing. Yeah, it's a good thing they're working together. And, and really the, the important lesson, one of the important lessons, is the response was incredibly strong and negative. So that's, that's I guess, if we want to have faith in the United States of America, there is some, there is a silver lining there. Question? When did Grant go to Galena? Because I've been to Galena, I've seen his home. Yeah, it was before, and right before town is a very funny town, and oh, really? if you go back to more of your stories that you're talking about, I'll be gentle with you. Galena, well, I he, felt a little funny there being... Being Jewish? Yeah, Galena, I've never been there. He really, it was his adopted hometown maybe the last few years before, before the war. After the war, um, he, would, he, he didn't live, actually live there very long. It's a very plain home, it's down the corner, I can picture it. Yeah, not heartfelt, heart funny into town, I did, uh -huh. with my wife. Did you see, yeah, he worked in a, in a leather shop, so there's a famous yeah, leather shop yeah, in Galena. But uh, he didn't actually live there very long. He was, a, he was a soldier. He lived a soldier's life. He was constantly on the move. He never really had a home. He viewed himself pretty homeless. So to whatever degree, he called Galena his home. Galena, Galena adopted him. They make a big deal about it. They do. He functionally couldn't have lived there more than three, four, five. He didn't live there more than five years of his life. Okay. So it really, <clears throat> really was not an anti-Semitic move, but financially okay. he felt that what the Jews were doing were financially hurting him. So let's talk about that. So, so what are the lessons? Let's talk about that. What are some of the lessons to be learned? Lesson number one, if we're not going to dwell on, is yes, this can happen in the United States of America. Don't feel too comfortable. Don't feel too comfortable. If this happened in 1862, it happened in 2062. Don't think that we're guaranteed you know, safety and protection. There's only Almost one... two years ago. What? It, <laughs> there's only one way that we get protection. There's only one way that us, us Jews, we get protection, and that is Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, our Father in Heaven. You've got to pray for sin. We've got to do our best, and we've got to do our best to take care of ourselves. But if we think that any country, and you know, I'm as patriotic as the next guy, but don't think there's no prophet, no, no you know, seer has told me that this is the chosen land, and it will be here forever. Hopefully that's the case, and that's our prayer. But it should always be in our background. This did happen, and it could happen again. Lesson number two. What, what are some of the real, like, it, it doesn't, like, right? You probably, if you're like me, something's missing. How do we understand what was going through Grant's mind? Who is Ulysses Grant? 
Sarna tells a remarkable story in his introduction to this book that I've, I've heard before, but I got to finally read it here. He said when he made it onto the, uh, onto the faculty, I think I was at, at Hebrew Union College, right? Just off track. Yeah, at, at HUC, Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. So he makes it onto the faculty. The, the Masora, the tradition, apparently at HUC, a nice reform college, or a reform rabbinical school, the tradition is, is faculty members, new faculty members, you, they have this presentation once a year where you go ahead and you make a presentation in front of the, the board, the trustees, the bigwigs of, of, the, of the college. So he had studied Grant, so he figured he'd give a discussion about General Order Number 11. And he talked about one of the stories behind the stories, and it is a critical story. And the story of Grant's father, Jesse Grant. Ulysses and Jesse had a pretty strained relationship, and throughout the Civil War and throughout Grant's presidency, Jesse really tried to make money off of his son's fame. He tried to use his son's position and stature and leverage that for business deals, for any financial opportunity. The story goes that there were two or three brothers in Cincinnati, the Mack family, Henry Mack, I believe was his name, and, and brothers, who entered into a business deal with Jesse, where basically Jesse would go down in November, which is right before this issue is, is uh, issued, and get a, one of those very valuable licenses from Grant to be able to get into the cotton business. And they made a deal with Jesse that if you're able to procure us one of those um, licenses, you'll get 25% of our, of our profit. When Grant found out about that, he got really, really upset. Who were the Mack brothers? They were Jewish. They absolutely were Jewish. And many theories go, and I believe they are correct, that really triggered Ulysses to have a very violent reaction. He had already had a strained relationship with his dad, and it was a couple of Jewish smugglers who kind of brought his dad into this business, the smuggling business, which Grant hated. And he, he ended up, he kicked, when he found out, his dad came, story goes he was there for like a day or two, and when he figured out what his dad was there for, he sent him home on a train and wrote a very harsh letter to his dad. He had a very strained relationship. Just as an aside, Sarna, in his introduction, writes, he's telling the story of the Mack brothers and Jesse Grant, and all of a sudden he sees one of the heads of the faculty, Jacob, Jacob Rader Morris, uh, you know, slump over in his chair, like, like, very uncomfortable. He couldn't figure out, as he's giving the presentation, it's a great story, like, why is he freaking out? And at the end of his presentation, he opens up and he wants to have a question. And one of the big wig, hotshot, you know, trustees stands up. He says, my name is Mac. Henry Mac was my great-grandfather. And he's like, oh God, my career is over. I'm not getting a job, it's the end of my career. And Mac says, and I want you to know, everything that you said tonight was true. <laughs> wow. So his job was saved. So apparently it's a true story with, with the Mac. It's very, well. I mean, we don't have super duper, like, you know, we have these kinds of testimonials. It's believed to be true. And if it's true, which I believe it is, based on 
with these scholars, I'm an amateur, but the scholars seem to think that it's a true story. I think there's some very powerful lessons that I want to talk about for a moment. One last thing, which is something to think about. You know, the Torah teaches us that the relationship between a, a, a parent and a child is a sacred relationship. <clears throat> Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. Part of that dynamic, I believe God created mankind that children have a natural propondency, a, a disposition to kind of want to follow their parents, to look up to their parents. Are you listening back there, carefully? And everything that they say is right. And the Torah also says that kids should wash the dishes. No. <laughs> That there should be, that I, I believe it's true that there is a, that children naturally look up to their parents. And if that relationship works and the parents do their best and are role models for their children, then it's great. But when parents don't live up to that mandate and are lacking, it can create tremendous tension. Because since the child naturally wants to look up to mom or dad, and mom or dad are deviant, mom and dad have major flaws, it can create major tension. And I think that's partially what happens here. You know, Grant has this very complicated relationship with his father, Jesse. His father, Jesse, in this scenario, you know, kind of, you know, shows a lack of integrity and would continue to show this lack of integrity throughout his life. You know, it was a, it was a trigger point. And that should be a powerful lesson, you know parents and children to recognize and realize that dynamic between parent and child is not, you know, just any other old relationship. It's a very powerful relationship and needs to be, you know, really needs to be cared for tenderly. There's a second lesson that's really, really important. Talmud tells us, a famous, you know, a well-known story in the Talmud. I can find the page. It's the story of the destruction of the Second Temple. The tragic story of the destruction of the Second Temple. One of the greatest tragedies in the history of the Jewish people. You know, order number 11 pales in comparison to the destruction of the Second Temple. In terms of loss of life, expulsion, devastation, national tragedy. What was the triggering event that causes the destruction of the Second Temple? Tom tells us, well-known story tells the story of Hahu Gavra. There was a man, he's not identified, an anonymous person, who goes ahead, Talmud tells us, Kamsa Bar Kamsa. There were two Jews, I think there were Jewish, two people in Jerusalem named Kamsa, and the second fellow was named Bar Kamsa. This fellow, this anonymous figure, he was friendly with Kamsa, but he was an enemy of Bar Kamsa. Now, if you're confused with the names because they're similar, you're not the only one. Because one day, this anonymous Jew goes ahead and he throws a party. And he asks his butler, his attendant, please go ahead and invite Kamsa, my friend, to this party that I'm making. The butler inadvertently goes ahead and he gets confused with the names. And what happens? He invites Barkamsa, the enemy. Barkamsa shows up to the party. 
The anonymous Jew is infuriated. What are you doing at my celebration? Now here I am hosting a Super Bowl party, and Barakamsa shows up, the chutzpah. How dare you? And he says, get out, kicks him out. Barakamsa realizes he doesn't want to make a scene. He says, look, I get it. It must have been a misunderstanding. I get it. Let me do you, do me a favor. Don't humiliate me publicly by kicking me out. I'll go pay for my, you know, whatever I eat and drink, I'll, I'll cover it. You know how says, no, get out. Firecom says, okay. How about this? I'll pay for half of the party. The anonymous Jew says, no, get out. Firecom says, I'll pay for the entire party. I'll write the check for the entire expense. And the anonymous Jew says, no, get out. Talmud tells us the story goes, there were, there were people there, the rabbis were there, and the rabbis didn't protest. Barakamsa, you know, gets enraged that how could this have happened? How come there wasn't a bigger, you know, how come more people didn't protest? How could this anonymous Jew have done what he did to publicly shame me? And he goes and he rats on the Jews to the, the local Roman governor. And he, he tells all sorts of bad slander about the Jewish people of Jerusalem to the, to the governor. And the rest is history. He calls that governor and he, he says, oh, really? And then the Barakamsa says, yeah, they're actually in open rebellion against you. He's, again, slamming that wasn't the case, slamming the Jews. And the Romans come and destroy, they destroy the temple. And the Talmud says, because of this story, this was the triggering event. The Talmud tells us, and it's in a critical lesson, the Talmud prefaces this story with a verse from <coughs> Nishle, from Proverbs. And the verse says, Ashrei Adam Mephachei Tamin, Umachalipo Yipobera. Praiseworthy is the person, praiseworthy is the man, Mephachei Tamin. It literally translates into who's constantly afraid. I don't think what the Talmud is telling us, you should have anxiety. You know? Praiseworthy is the person who's constantly you know, afraid of everything. It's not what the Talmud means. Rashi explains, rather, Doeg liros hanola. What it means, you shouldn't be having anxiety, but it means you should have a certain fear might not be the right word. A concern might be a better word. A person should be aware my actions might trigger reactions. Be aware that what you do might snowball into something horrific. It might snowball into the destruction of the second temple and to the death of tens of thousands. And this Hanu Gavra, this anonymous Jew, can you imagine putting yourself in that situation? All right, he gets into a fight with, with uh, you know, some fellow. He doesn't treat him appropriately. If he'd stop him right there and said, you know, anonymous Jew, I want you to know, because of how you just mistreated Bar Kamsa, you do realize that tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of Jews are going to die and perish, the temple will be destroyed, the Jews will be exiled because of what this little, what you just did right now. He would have said, what are you talking about? But you'd be right. That's what the Talmud is telling us. And it's cautioning us, recognize our actions have reactions, and oftentimes those reactions are really snowball into big things. And we should never go ahead and say, you know, okay, you know, maybe I acted appropriately. The things that I do aren't such big deals. Whatever. Sometimes I don't have the most integrity, the most honesty. What's the big deal? It's just little old me. Imagine go tell the, 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 the Mac brothers. You know, they're involved in some, you know, a little bit of shady smuggling. 
easily justifiable, right? If you tell the Mac brothers, I want you to know, because of this transaction, this lack of integrity, this funny thing that you've got going on, the shady business deal, I want you to know the Jews are going to be kicked out of Tennessee, the United States of America. It would be the most infamous decree in the history of the country. I <laughs> tell you what he's talking about. But you'd be right. I think it's a real lesson for us. It should really be a motivator to do what's right. We should live our lives with integrity. You, don't, you, know, you never know. You know, we do one avera, one thing that's not appropriate. One thing, one moment in our lives we act a little bit of you know, lack of integrity and it can really spell disaster. And that's, that is one of the lessons from this story. So it was great in anti-Semitic. Thoughts, questions before we go on to the, the next point? Still a few more minutes. Good. I lose everyone? Okay. All right. Still have. It's like uh, history repeating itself. <coughs> repeating itself in reverse. Here was a father profiting from his son's position, and sort of recently there was a son that profited from his father's position. Uh, what in reference to? Hmm? Am I not sure what you're referring to? Biden. Oh, all right. You don't talk about politics around here. Everyone knows that. I'll be like the Howard Governor. I'll kick you out of here, Doctor. Um, all right, let's keep politics out of here. But um, the, the, the real next question, and I think there's some really important lessons. Was Grant an anti-Semite? Yes. Okay. Ultimately, this is going to be a type of question. There is no, you know, everyone's going to have to come up with your own decision. You know. You might say yes, you might say no, I'll say one thing, you say no. Really, you have to formulate your own, your own opinion. Um, and I want to talk about that, Phyllis, if I can, for a second. Talk about judging others. I was thinking about it. You know, it's great and anti-Semite. What we're really doing is we're judging someone else. So it got me thinking, like, a Jewish perspective on judging other people. So I thought of a couple different scenarios of, of judging others. So one type of judging is... Know, I want to know, is Ulysses Grant going to heaven? Or is he going to hell for his action? Is he a Russia? Is he a righteous man or a tzaddik? A, a, a Russia, he's a, he's a wicked man, or is he a tzaddik, a righteous man? So it's a very, very important lesson. This is a very, very important idea. Rambam writes, when it talks about Rosh Hashanah, we know we come before God in judgment, judging others. And God goes ahead, what happens on Rosh Hashanah? God judges us. Do we have, you know, mitzvahs, the good deeds that we've done, the the bad deeds that, that we've done. And God judges us every year on Rosh Hashanah, and certainly when our time is up, when we come before God after 120 years, you know, we have the ultimate judgment. How does God judge that? How does God calculate that? So Rambam tells us, Shikul Zeh, when God goes ahead and he judges us, it's not, it's not just like numbers. You know, a mitzvah is one dollar and a vera is a negative one dollar. It's not how it works because it's not just a matter of quantity, but it's a matter of quality. Not all sins are created equal. Not all mitzvahs are created equal. You know, it depends on the temptation. It depends on the situation. Circumstances make a very big difference. And you can have one good deed that's greater than a million bad deeds. You can have one bad deed that's a more wicked deed than a million good deeds. So how in the world can we calculate if someone's a good person or a bad person? The answer is you can't. And Rambam tells us 
The Ein Shoklin Elabadaito Shal El Deos. The only person who can actually do this judgment, is someone good or not good, is God. So when it comes to someone's spirituality, it's always an important you know, thing to keep in mind. You can't judge someone else's spirituality. Ramam tells us, get out of the judging business, at least when it comes to someone, nothing to do with your life. Some anonymous, you know, a person who doesn't affect me in any way. Is this person a good guy or a bad guy? You don't know. You don't know the, the struggles that this person has, the temptations, the background, the scenario. And uh, the weight of a mitzvah, you know, is exactly that. It's weighted based on circumstances you'll never do. So that's always a nice thing to keep in mind. Great. What about, so that's one kind of judgment. There's another situation where you judge other people, and that's in the court of law. You know, great, God judges people's spirituality, but let's say someone steals, robs from you, right? You know, take them to court. So when it comes to, like, criminal civil laws, we know in that scenario, context is absolutely meaningless. If you owe me a million dollars, I don't care how good of a person you are, you owe me a million dollars. There's a verse in the Torah, we'll set Berivo. You have a poor man, he's destitute, and you're a judge. Are you allowed to have compassion on him in a court case? The answer is no. Your job is to, you know, issue justice. That's in civil and criminal law. That's not what we're going to talk about here either. We're not judging grand spirituality, and we're not bringing him before a court of law. Rather, we're judging him on who he is as a person in this moment. You know, there's an entire book, say for Chaim, if you've, you've, you talk about it all the time, when it comes to the laws of Lashon Hara, if you hear a negative report about someone, are you allowed to believe it? So there are all sorts of rules governing that. Generally, the, the rule is negative reports you're not allowed to believe. That's Lashon Hara. But Sedek Tishbodis Amisachli, you shall judge your nation favorably. You're not supposed to really listen um, you know, to negative reports unless it's to protect yourself. We find ourselves here in kind of like a fourth scenario. We're sort of judging a historical figure. So we're not judging someone who's alive. We're not judging someone that we're doing business with. It's judging a, a historical figure. So it's a little bit of a funny scenario. There's a, I'm reminded of a passage in the Talmud that when the great historians Living me well, Rabbi Beryl Wine lives in Israel. He tells over, he's one of, the, one of the great Jewish historians of our day. And he tells over the passage in the Talmud. The passage in the Talmud says that the great Rabbi Ashi was having a conversation with his students um, uh, in the yeshiva one day. And Rabbi Ashi speaks disparagingly about one of the villains in the Torah, one of the villains in the biblical literature, the story of Menashe. Recall, Menashe's king Hezekiah's son. He's one of the kings of Israel, and he's a villain. He's a horrible person. Persecutes the Jews. And Rabbi Ashi speaks disparagingly about, about this fellow, about, about King Menashe. And Talmud says that night, Rabbi Ashi has kind of like a prophetic dream, and lo and behold, who's the star character in his dream? Menashe. And Menashe shows up, and he asks him, says, why are you talking disparagingly about him? And Menashe about me. And Menashe says, I want you to know, you think you're so smart, you think you're such a big rabbi, you know, what's the most difficult question that's on your mind? And Rabbi Ashi, you know, mentions some very deep Talmudic question, and Menashe gives the answer, just like that. As if to show him, I'm smarter than you. I know more about Torah than you. To him, to at which point Rabbi Ashi goes ahead, again, in his dream, he asks the evil Menashe, he says, 
whoa, if you're such a scholar, such a righteous, smart person, how come you ended up being such a terrible idolater and such a villain, particularly with idolatry, really leads the entire Jewish people to stray for, with idolatry? To which Menashe tells him, critically, he says, I want you to know, you think you're so holy, you think you're so righteous, Rabbi Ashi. If you would have been around in my day, you would have been, the language is, you would have lifted up your coat so that you, it wouldn't get in the way of you running to idolatry. You would have put on your, your running shoes to jog, to run after the idolatry. You would have been the first guy online, you know, being involved in pagan idolatrous worship. That's the passage in the Bible. Rabbi Wein said, what's the lesson? Now we know the passion for idolatry doesn't exist. We were taught, not getting too far afield, kind of went away after the Second Temple era. Rabbi Ashi's living at, really after, so, it, right, you know, right, really during the Second Temple era, it goes away. Rabbi Ashi's living after that, he didn't have the passion for, for idolatry. And Menashe was really telling him a very deep idea when it comes to judging historical characters. It's very tempting when we judge others to put them you, and judge them based on the current historical norms. What is considered appropriate in society today? And we go ahead and we'll judge some historical figure by what's politically correct today, what's socially correct today. And that's not fair. You have to judge people where they are in the context of their time. And that's a very, very important, important lesson when it comes to, to Grant. Hey, Arslaid, I want to just get through a couple quick points and, and kind of, I want to offer my opinion. Here's the story of Grant that we know after order number 11. When Grant becomes president, or is running for president in 1868, order number 11 was a big deal. The Democrats wanted to smear him with it. The Republicans thought all the Jews vote in blocks. Right, certain things never change. Everything. Oh, you want to get the Jewish vote? As if like all Jews vote the same, right? So the Republicans were terrified. The Jews would vote, vote as a block, and all vote for the Democrats. Grant, on suggestion of Elihu Washburn, who was an anti-Semite, wrote a letter meant for public uh, that was deliberately leaked to the public. He wrote the following letter. I want to just read it. writes a letter, oh, here it is. To Isaac Morris, who is Jewish, he insisted in September. He writes the following, this is Grant. I have no prejudice against any sect or race, but want each individual to be judged by his own merit. General Orders number 11 does not sustain this statement, but then I do not sustain that order. It never would have been issued if it had not been telegraphed the moment penned without one moment's reflection. He basically acknowledges, and he would acknowledge moving forward, it was a terrible mistake. Grant, as president, would deliberately go ahead and um, offer jobs to more Jews than any president before him. He would get involved in international Jewish affairs. He stood up for Jews getting pro prosecuted in Romania and in Tsarist Russia. The story, it's a true story, okay, and they're very proud of it. Congregation Adas Israel in 
Washington, D.C., builds their you know, temple in, I think it was 1870. President Grant goes to the service for the, you know, the Anshabas. Three-hour service. Oh. Now, typically when dignitaries come into a shul, you know, what do they do? They come in for their 12 minutes, say hi, thank you very much, and they leave. Here's the president of the United States. And he stayed all three hours. They said he wore his hat on his head because he saw that he sees everyone wearing their yarmulkes. And he doesn't want to offend anyone who keeps his hat on his head. He didn't. But the whole thing is in Hebrew. He doesn't understand a word. He just sat there like perfect obedience. He didn't leave a second early. And he made a $10 contribution at the end. <laughs> Grant, in my opinion, was a deeply flawed man. I actually love Grant as, as a biographical figure because he's so flawed. I don't like perfect people because I'm not perfect and I can't relate to them. Grant, right? Don't listen to that. <laughs> Grant was a deeply flawed man. If you've heard that he struggled with alcohol addiction, it's true, he did. It's not a fake story. He was an alcoholic, he struggled with addiction. Never beat it. At best, he managed it pretty well, but he relapsed many a time. Uh, he had many deep flaws. I believe Grant changed. I believe he recognized it was a mistake. You know, to the question, was he an anti-Semite? The order didn't come from, in my opinion, typical anti-Semitic, I hate the Jews, they're all wealthy, or... It came from a legitimate, what I believe was a legitimate frustration of smugglers. And there were many Jews who were smugglers. His error was going ahead and then, you know, classifying an entire group and saying you're all guilty by association. Keep in mind, in the 1860s, everyone did everything by association. Everyone was loved. That's how it was, again, not that it was right, that's how people operated. Jews were the money lenders. That was, you know, that was just kind of out there in the parlance of the day. It was inexpensive. Oh, for, go, for, for thousands of years. In that kind of environment. In the pressure of all the responsibilities that Grant had, and I'm not excusing him, I'm not apologizing for him. I think what he did was absolutely wrong, but it has to be, in my opinion, understood in that context. I think he showed real contrition. He really felt bad about it. It's interesting, the best presidential memoirs you will ever read, any president, I haven't read all of them, but I've read many of them, by far are Ulysses Grant. He wrote the bad, everyone uses Grant's memoirs, as like the model for a presidential memoir. It's fantastic. You know, what, you know what happened? You know how does how does he treat General Order Number Eleven, which was the low mark of his entire professional life? Totally skips it. Why? He was deeply ashamed. He didn't he didn't want to take it. And they asked his son Frederick, why isn't it in there? He said something in fact like that was in the past. Best not to bring it up. It wasn't a whitewash. It was I believe general contrition. You know, do we take down statues? What's the Jewish approach? I think the answer is very case by case. I think that's always been my, my feeling. You take down statues, right? That's, that's what everyone's doing, take down statues. I think some statues should come down. If there are statues of Adolf Hitler somewhere, they should be taken down. I think statues of Nathan Bedford Forrest, if you study American history, he was a traitor. He was a horrible, horrible person in this country. There should be no statues of, it bothers me, I have my little thing, I'm not trying to get too political. I always found it ridiculous. In North Carolina, there's the Jefferson Davis Highway. Jefferson Davis was the greatest traitor in the history of the country. What are we doing naming highways after Jefferson Davis? 
kicking slavery. So I, I don't get it. That said, not all villains are created equal. We're going to take down statues of everyone who sinned. We're not going to have any statues up. It needs to be done, in my opinion, very, very case by case. Aren't we not and, supposed to have statues? That's a different question. That's a very different oh, okay. question. I think we do need to rec recognize people are imperfect. My opinion, but I certainly recognize others you know, might view things different. Grant made a terrible mistake, and he acknowledged it, and he recognized it, and he moved off of it. I think that's a powerful lesson as well. We'll end with that. People can change. People can make mistakes, big mistakes, and really have genuine contrition. We talked about it in the story over the high holidays. We talked about the story of Ishmael. Ishmael was a great villain in the history of the Torah. Torah describes him as a kara adam, a wild man. He's a terrible person. Yet we find, at the end of his life, Ishmael does tshuva. He repents. He's a righteous person. He's considered by the Torah a pious man. He changes behavior. He changes attitude. People can change. I think Grant changed. I will never know. Ultimately, we'll let, let that for God. But I think that should be an inspiration for us. We might really commit some really bad things. That doesn't mean we're doomed forever. And I think we need to understand that in that kind of context. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast, or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.